Hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm. What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, If women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. Your impression of what a sex therapist does may be based on the hit TV show, Masters of Sex, where Masters and Johnson observed hundreds of people actually having sex. Or maybe Roz Fokker, the sex therapist slash mom on Meet the Fockers. Well, today I'm going to have a conversation with an actual sex therapist to find out what really happens behind those closed doors. My guest, Rachel Czar, has a master's degree in marital and family therapy and is an ASEX certified sex therapist. And she's currently pursuing her PhD in clinical sexology. Prior to starting her career as a therapist, Rachel worked for many years as a writer and magazine editor and continues to write professionally, including a bi-monthly sex and love column in Prevention Magazine. In addition to being one of my most favorite people on earth, Rachel is my daughter. So if you've ever wondered what it's like when a gynecologist mother and a sex therapist daughter hang out together, well, you're about to find out. So hi, honey. Welcome to your mom's podcast. Hi, Mom. Thanks for finally having me on. What made me realize it was time was I heard you on someone else's podcast. And I thought, wow, she's really good. I should have Rachel as a guest on my podcast. So, mm-hmm. yeah, sorry about that. I, I I shouldn't have waited so long. Okay, I'm not going to embarrass you by telling stories of when you were a kid, even though I have a lot of really, really good stories. But I want you to tell a story about what it was like to grow up with a gynecologist as a mom. I appreciate that I'm the one that gets to tell the embarrassing mm-hmm. stories. Um, I think the worst part, and again, it's so different thinking about it now as my adult sex therapist self, as opposed to the way that I thought about it when I was a kid who, of course, kids are always embarrassed by their parents no matter what they do. But I had a particularly embarrassing parent. And I think that a lot of what I was so embarrassed by as a kid was that you were doing a lot of obstetrics back then. And when you were on call, no matter where we were, you would have to take that call and talk to a patient. And sometimes that meant that we were carpooling with my friends in the backseat. Sometimes it meant that it was the middle of the dinner table, right? Or Anything you would have a friend over, right? And right, and- right. And and you're there talking about episiotomies and discharge, right? You know, what color is your discharge? Well, I do, okay, speaking of discharge, I do remember there was that one time in the car, I think it was probably like the fifth grade carpool or something, and I was taking a phone call from a patient and I said something like so, you know, what color is your discharge and does it have a bad odor? And then I glanced and saw you in the back seat sitting with your friends and you just look beyond horrified and i realized oh god this is <laughs> yeah but in retrospect well and it did allow me my early work on being kind of a sex therapist and a sex educator because when we get out of that carpool i'm the one that my friends are turning to me and going what's discharge right and you, i have to answer right, you were questions. the expert so you were, you, i got my start got very there. young 
I remember you tell me when you went to overnight camp and when someone, you know, got their period for the first time, you were the one that said, oh, this is perfectly natural and this is what you need to know. And, and you were, you know, quite the little educator. Well, I'm glad you didn't tell the story about um, when you were in high school and I convinced both you and your sister that because I was a gynecologist, I had special powers to know if you were having sex. And I, I think you believe that, right? I think by the time I was in high school, I could call your bluff on that one. But early on, it was, I got to say, not your best, most positive, most sex positive moment. Yeah. But there were a lot of other really great sex positive moments that made up for Which it. Which would have been the best part of having a gynecologist as a mom, right? I will say, I think the best part about having a gynecologist as a mom is that we just always knew the correct terms for our body parts. We were never dancing around any of this. We were never saying pee-pee and hoo-ha, right? We were saying vulva and vagina. I don't remember learning about periods or about where bodies or where babies came from, rather, that these were just things that were integrated and always, I mean, besides the rare discharge occurrence in the car, always in an age-appropriate way and never in a way where like we were talking about each other's sex lives, but there was always yeah. an acknowledgement of the fact that sex existed and that it was natural and that these are the changes that your bodies go through. And there was never anything about that that was ever shameful. And I didn't realize until much later in my life that these that this was not the same as what everybody experienced and that a lot of people didn't grow up in such, such sex positive environments. Um, and it's been a real learning curve for me mm. in my work to have to meet people in the space that they're coming from where they didn't have the privilege of having. Right. I mean, that had to be kind of a, a shocker for you, actually, to find out that people would get married and not even know the mechanics of intercourse. Yeah, no, it's really um, it's been really, really eye opening throughout my career, just how much the sex education system has failed us, um, yeah. how little you know, in order for parents to be good educators of their children, they need to be educated themselves. And there needs to be some real countering to a lot of this sexual shame and the stigma around talking about sex. Um, and we're a long ways from that. So I really do feel very lucky that I grew up in a household where that wasn't the case. And that yeah. we were really yeah, but, able but you to made such an important point, because what you just said about how people aren't often educated, because their parents don't tell them. And instead of blaming the parent, I think we need to acknowledge that sometimes the parents don't know. So it's not that they were withholding information from their kids, it's they didn't really know the answer to a lot of these questions, and just avoided the whole yeah. topic. Right. And it's not, and part of it's that they don't know, but part of it is also that there's this real shame and anxiety and stigma that, you know, a lot of the a lot of the clients that I see are parents themselves, and they're really working through their own sexuality and their old sexual, their own sexual understanding. And then they're also carrying the task of having to or wanting to do something differently for their children of wanting to educate their children. And it's really hard, right? I really want to acknowledge that this is a very hard thing. And it takes often generations to unlearn some of this. So, so what actually inspired you to become a sex therapist? Because it wasn't me, you know, I never encouraged you to become mm -hmm. any kind of a therapist. And I was really surprised when one day when you literally there, you were working in New York at a big magazine as a journalist, and you were, you know, doing a lot of editing and freelance writing. And then one day you just called me up and said, you know, I'm changing careers, and I'm going to be a sex therapist. And I'm like, whoa. Mm -hmm. So talk about how that happened. 
Yeah, it was a big change. And it was something that at the time felt very spontaneous and very like, where did this come from? But of course, in hindsight, when I look back, I think I was in training to be a sex therapist my whole life. I mean, first of all, as I've said, I've always been the person that people can come to to talk about sex and sexuality and their and their health. Um, and that's always been a really comfortable space for me. When I was in high school and college, I worked at a sexuality boutique where I was helping people discover their sexuality through erotica and lingerie and sex toys and really entering into these intimate conversations. Right, let's just stop for a second space. because yeah. you want an example of a sex positive mother who got you that job? Okay, I will give you credit. You didn't get me the job, but you did oh, introduce I me to the you. person that, that interviewed. Well, actually, the person who ran that sexuality boutique was my Hebrew school teacher when I was yeah, a kid. So it was kind of a, a long introduction there. But yeah, I think that's perfectly, it's a perfect example of how that didn't feel like a strange job for me to yeah. have because it was, I mean, I just thought of it as a retail job, just in the same way that my friends- Selling shoes, for at, example. Right, so other Exactly. Exactly. It was a very comfortable space for me to enter into. And then, of course, I went into journalism. I was a magazine editor. Um, and then somewhere down the road, I started writing about women's health, about sexuality, Um Part of that, I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you some credit here is when you were working on your book, Sex Rx, and you invited me to do a little bit of editing, to do a little writing, to brainstorm with you about some of the formatting of the book. I mean, it really did help to show me just how much I knew, how comfortable I was with the subject matter, and how much I liked to be writing about this topic, to be yeah. educating about this topic. So I started doing that more and more throughout my career that I was doing a lot of freelance writing about women's health, about sexuality. And I felt like something was missing where I wasn't getting that human to human connection, but I really wasn't feeling like I was helping people in a more direct way. And it was through that job as a journalist that I met someone who I was using as a source for one of my articles, who was a sex therapist who really just opened my eyes to this world. And it was one of those things that actually happened very quickly after I discovered that this was a thing that I thought, oh my goodness, that's it. That's what I need to be doing. And I think I said to this woman who was the source, I just said to her, how do I become you? Right? I just, I was like, that's a job. I can just talk to people about their sex lives, help them discover themselves sexually. I mean, that sounds so amazing. And I'd always been interested in mental health. I was like one credit shy of being a psych major in college and then decided to become an English major. So actually, in hindsight, it felt like I was moving toward this path the whole time. But I remember at the time, it felt like, where did this come from, right? This isn't the path that you were on. Um, but in hindsight, it makes a whole lot of sense. You know, sense. it's so funny because most of us pick our careers when we're in college. And part of the problem of picking your career then, other than that, you know, you know nothing when you're in college and haven't been out in the world, is that there are jobs you don't even know exist. Exactly. And, and until you get exposed to something like that, you, you don't know. So once you figured out that's what you want to do, talk a little bit about what it takes to be a sex therapist. Cause you know, there's these people out there who call themselves, you know, sex coaches and this one and that mm. one that's doling out advice. And of course they are not certified sex therapists. So just, just describe what it takes to become an academic certified sex therapist. Yes. And it is important to distinguish between sex therapy and sex coaches and sex educators. And there are a lot of really, really wonderful sex coaches and sex educators who are doing great work. Um, it is a different beast. And I think the really important thing about sex therapy is that everyone who you'll meet who's a sex therapist 
first has an advanced degree, um, either a master's or a PhD in a form of counseling, whether that's counseling therapy, my degrees in marriage and family therapy, social work, they'll always be a therapist first. So that means that not only have they gone through either a master's degree or a PhD in understanding how to be a therapist, but they are also licensed within their state. They are governed by a set of ethical and legal um, restrictions. That means that they have to kind of stay above board, that you know that they're working ethically, that there are good boundaries, right? All of these things that are so important for sex therapists. So that's where it's really, it's really nice to have a therapist because you know that they have that foundational training mm-hmm. first. Um, After that, the process of becoming a certified sex therapist, and there is a difference between someone who just says that they're a sex therapist, which I've been a sex therapist since the day that I graduated with my master's, even though I wasn't a certified sex therapist because I was practicing sex therapy and it was the thing that I specialized in. But it took three years of really extensive training and education and supervision and clinical work to become a certified sex therapist. Um, So it's important to do your research when you're signing up to work with a sex therapist to find out, are they certified? Um, There are lots of really, really good sex therapists who are not certified, but you do want to do some extra research in terms of asking them what kind of training they've had um, because there is a difference and there is a very, very extensive training process that that you need to go through in order to be a certified sex therapist. And that means that they're certified by this governing body called ASECT, the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And again, to be a certified sex therapist, you need to do continuing education. There are a set of guidelines um, and ethical restrictions that ASECT overseas. Um, so it is something that you do need to maintain throughout your career. You know, and I will put the the link for um, ASECT in the program notes. So if someone wants to find an ASECT certified therapist, you can go to their website. But as a gynecologist, you know, from my point of view, one of the huge values to a certified sex therapist is so much of the work that I do is about the physical, hormonal, medical, biologic aspects of people who are having difficulty with sexual function. And a certified sex therapist knows about that. So if I have somebody who's having painful sex and I'm going to send them for pelvic floor physical therapy or they need to do home dilator therapy, if you went to your regular therapist, even if they were really good and said, you know, oh my gosh, I've got to do dilator therapy and that's just overwhelming to me, they look at you like, what? You know, and a certified sex therapist, this is part of what you talk about every single day. You're familiar with these medical conditions. You're familiar with the treatments. These are the kinds of people that you're working with so that not only are you educated about it yourself, but you can educate your your clients about it as well. And for me, that is just such a huge part of it. And patients, you know, really, really appreciate that. They don't have to explain to their therapist what they're going through or, or what their treatment is, because that's what you do every day. All right. Mm-hmm. So before we get to um, what happens during a sex therapy session, because you know, I talked about everyone has this idea of what happens. So just let's clear up a few of these myths and just talk about what things are not going to happen? Sure. I think, as you said in your introduction, TV and movies have really done us dirty as a profession in terms of showing an authentic way. Um, and a lot of the stuff that you mentioned, I mean, the Masters of Johnson stuff was based in reality, right? It was how a lot of the early work was done. It is not how we do things anymore, unless you're in a research study. Yeah, like, that's the other thing. I think people didn't right. realize. It was research, yeah, not was research. They were trying to figure exactly. out what people do sexually, not trying to help them if they were having trouble. 
Right. Exactly. And, you know, the Meet the Fockers one is hilarious where she's, you know, it's Barbara Streisand giving, I think, like, it's like geriatric Kama Sutra or something. It's how she put it, where she's having people act out these sex positions. Um, and then I think, honestly, the worst one was there was some, there was a depiction on Grey's Anatomy. This was last year. It was really, really recent where there was a sex therapist who was in the hospital as a patient. And part of his work as a sex therapist, I'm doing air quotes if you can't see me, is to watch people on Zoom having sex and to be giving them pointers as they were having sex. And this is just so far off base from what a sex therapist does. We are never going to be watching you have sex. We are never going to be touching you. We will never ask you to take off your clothes in our office. Everything that we're doing is just talking. It is talk therapy at its core. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, not only is that surprising, but it's really reassuring because when I say, and in fact, what I will often say to people, I don't say, I need you to go see a sex therapist. What I'll say is I would like you to see a talk therapist who has an expertise in sexual problems. And that actually is a lot more comfortable in terms of describing. Yeah. So just a sweeping generalization, you know, who would benefit from sex therapy? What kinds of issues do you deal with on a daily basis? Mm -hmm. It's a good question. And it really, really runs the gamut because I'll see folks who come in basically with any sexual concern under the sun, right? Folks who are questioning their sexuality, who are wanting to discover how they really authentically show up sexually, who are wanting to battle some sexual shame, who have experienced sexual trauma. Um, I also work one of my specialties and some of the work that we've done together is around female bodied folks who are having some kind of sexual functioning issue. So they're having difficulty with either sexual pain or with orgasms or libido. Um, I also work with folks of all genders around um, sexual functioning, how they're showing up sexually, any anxiety around sex, any issues with how their body is responding, feeling disconnected yeah. from their body. Really, the list goes on and on. Um, and the other thing that's important to note is that I also do general therapy, but it's sex inclusive and it's um, sex positive. So if someone's coming to me and they're, and I'm a marriage and family therapy, I'm a relationship therapist first. So I'll see a lot of people who are just struggling with dating and forming relationships and they want a therapist who they can also talk about their sex life with as they do this. And that's a really big part of being a sex therapist as well. I forget about that part a lot. So we're going to get to some of the specifics about how you deal with some of these issues, but just kind of as a, as an introduction. So mm-hmm. If a couple walks into your office for the very first time, like I refer someone, and sometimes I kind of have to push a little bit. They're really uncomfortable with the idea. And when they show up in your office, not only are they uncomfortable, but they're wondering why they're even there. So Mm. can you just talk about how you, and I know this is your approach, not everybody's approach, but Mm. how do you even start the conversation with a brand new couple who's there for the first time? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good, it's, and the real answer is the first thing I do with a couple when they walk into my office is I let them know what to expect, right? I talk to them about what we're going to do in that room, about what this first session is going to look like. I, of course, let them know that this is something that I'm really comfortable talking about and that I talk about every single day, all day. There's very little they could say that would shock me. There is very little they could say that I haven't heard before. And I understand that they might not be there yet in terms of comfort level. So I really let them know that I'm going to meet them where I'm at. 
where they're at in terms of their comfort, that if I ask them a question that they're not comfortable answering, they're allowed to say pass, or I don't want to talk about that, right? I never, never push when someone tells me that they're not comfortable going somewhere. Um, but what I'm really trying to do, and I think what does tend to happen actually is because people know that I have this specialty, even if they've never been able to talk about things with other therapists or even with past couples therapists, just knowing that I have this expertise does provide some level of safety um, where they feel like, okay, I'm allowed to talk about this stuff. But if they're not there yet, they're not there yet. Yeah. And the other thing that I tell people, which is really important, is I'm not only interested in them as sexual, I'm also interested in getting to know them outside of sex. One of my mantras, I say this a lot, is you don't stop being you just because you're having sex. So the first thing I really want to do when I'm working with a new client, and just to be clear, I do work with a lot of couples. I also work with a lot of individuals. You don't have to be partnered to see a sex therapist. You can go see a sex therapist without your partner. Um, a lot of the people I see are coming in by themselves, also a lot of couples. Um, but I really, really make it clear that I want to get to know them as a complete human being, that I want to get to know their relationship outside of just what's going on sexually. And then we are also going to talk about the sexual parts as they become comfortable doing so. You know, I've actually never asked you this before, but what percentage of, of people that come to see you for a first visit show up for a second visit? I mean, because I know most of them are really just like, Oh my God, I'm not going to go this. I'm not, my partner's not going to want to go. This is weird. But how many of them actually say, you know, I'm coming back for more. You know, what I find is that really the hardest part of this whole process is making the call, sending the email and walking through the door. Once you've done that, showing up for the second session isn't as hard. But so most so, of them do show up for a second. Yeah, session. actually, once they're in the door. And that's, you know, that's my main goal in a first session is just to create a sense of safety um, and to assess. Of course, there are the folks that come in for a first session and we mutually assess that it's not a good fit or that I can't help them with the specific problem that they're looking for. That's part of seeing any therapist is that yeah. you're assessing, is this the right person for me? Do I feel comfortable with this person? And I'm doing the same. I'm thinking more about, is this a good fit for me clinically? Um, can I work with this person. And then at the end of an assessment period, that might be one session, it might be four, we're going to have a conversation about how is our therapeutic relationship and do we feel like we can work together. But for the most part, I find that the hardest part is just getting through the door. And you know, one of the things that was a, a big learning curve for me and the other um, clinicians in the Center for Sexual Medicine, where you um, have been working uh, part-time in addition mm -hmm. to your private practice, but this whole idea of you know, in terms of we talked about who would benefit. And when we very first started doing this kind of work, we were very selective. You know, it was when people would indicate, oh, I have a partner issue or this or that, that we'd say, oh, would you like to see one of our sex therapists? And then what we realized is that even people who have great relationships who say, you know, I love my partner. I love my husband. I love my spouse. It's all good. Um, you know, just please fix my pain with sex and I'm good to go. And then what we really began to realize is that those people also would benefit because you can still have a wonderful relationship and love your partner. But when you haven't been able to have intercourse for five years because it hurt too much, that's going to have an impact. So we started pretty much across the board. Um, suggesting to all of our patients that this is something might they might benefit from. And one of the things that we were surprised to find is how many of them said, yeah, 
that I, I actually would like that. That is something I would like to do. So that was a huge learning curve. So so let's talk about that a little bit because that's one of the more common um, scenarios that I'll send someone to you is the woman comes in and she has, you know, horrible terrible pain with intercourse or can't have intercourse because of the dryness and the changes that occur with menopause. And then we fix the medical problem. You know, we get her started with her whatever local vaginal estrogen and pelvic floor PT and all of that. And then we send her to you and she walks in the door and says, you know, okay, my vagina's working fine right now. No pain, Mm -hmm. but we haven't had sex in like a year what how do you how do you approach that Mm -hmm. right it's such a common thing especially with folks who i see at the center for sexual medicine who they and what's nice about that is that they do get the best medical care so i do have confidence that they that physical issue for the most part can be fixed at least to a point where they're able to function in the way that they would like to sexually but we can't erase it in your example we can't erase that year and quite and quite often that's a year of pain and frustration of disconnect with their partner maybe even of conflict with their partner it's really really hard to have a change in your sexual functioning, to have a change in your relationship. Um, and for a lot of folks, it's actually traumatic, right? To keep putting your body through something that is causing you pain, right? And especially for um, female-bodied people who aren't necessarily, they don't really know that like, you're not supposed to just like grit and bear it through the pain, that sex is never ever supposed to be um, supposed to be painful, they will endure a lot of pain, a lot of physical pain, a lot of relational pain, a lot of emotional pain. And you can't just erase that when the physical pain goes away, right? That emotional scarring, that relational scarring is still there. So a lot of what we're working on is really, first of all, understanding what the impact is and then working with them. And a lot of what I'm doing with, um, with clients, especially as they're noticing that their body is changing. And even with the best medical care in the world, our bodies change, right? Our bodies are not the same bodies that we were having sex with when we first became sexual. And a lot of the process of growing and getting to know yourself as a sexual human being is to notice how you change with time and meet yourself, meet your body where you're at. Sometimes, and For the example that you gave, if someone's gone through menopause, we think about, okay, you're not going to have your pre-menopause body back, right? So often people want to say, I just want to get back to that. So we've got to grieve that loss a little bit, right? Recognize that our bodies do change with time um, for, you know, for folks who have a male-bodied partner, their bodies are going to change as well. And we have to deal with that as well. So a lot of what we're doing is kind of grieving that loss and also working with them to develop something new. And sometimes, especially if the pain goes away, which is obviously what we want, then we're able to really develop something that feels really, really good and pleasurable for folks who have something going on where that pain can't completely go away. We're working with them to create a full sexual experience without causing themselves any unnecessary pain. And, you know, and and reconnecting sexually. Yes, of course. The relational aspect is huge. Um, and I've seen it's really, really wonderful what can happen in terms of not just getting back to where people were before they were in pain, but really building something that's even better because they're talking more, right? That they're really, really understanding where is my body at right now? I hear so many people say, you know, I would never, ever wish 
pain with intercourse, pain with sex on anybody. And I, you know, if I could go back and not have it, I would. And it's made our relationship so much stronger. It's made our communication so much stronger by having to work past this. And the sex that we're having on the other side is actually better than the sex that we we're having before. Well, you always talk it about a lot of work is, is the sex worth having, which is what brings me to desire discrepancy, which is another mm-hmm. thing that um, when I think in terms of the common things that I am referring mm-hmm. to sex therapy for, desire discrepancy is interesting because that's something that I see not just in midlife women, I see this in in young women as well. Mm -hmm. And um, so talk about that a little bit, what your approach to desire, well, first, what is desire discrepancy and what is your approach? It's such a good question because it's one of the most common reasons that sex therapists will see couples in sex therapy. Um, And when we say desire discrepancy, what we mean is that there's a difference in the frequency, in the time, even in the types of sex that you want to be having between two partners. So that might be two partners, two folks who come in and one says, I want to be having sex every single day. And the other says, I'm perfectly happy with once a week. It might be two people coming in where someone says, I want once a week and their partner is saying, I want once a month or once a year, or actually I'd be okay never having sex again. Right. So we're figuring out you know, how can they work with that? How can they meet in the middle? Um, or how can they really, what it's about is understanding each other in a way that's non-shaming and non-judgmental and understanding the dance that they do around that discrepancy. Mm-hmm. So where is the conflict coming from? What are the feelings that are underneath, right? What is it like to initiate sex with a partner and have them say no? And how can we do that differently, right? So a lot of it is it's not trying to change the way that people show up sexually, because for everyone who's the low desire partner in one relationship, they would be the higher desire partner in another relationship. Well, right? okay. you're, you're too young to remember this and, you know, but I'm your mother. So, I, but there was this old Woody Allen movie that there was this scene with this, you know, the therapist and therapist says to the man in the relationship, mm-hmm. how often do you have sex? And he says, oh my God, hardly ever, like once yeah. a week. And then it shows another session where the same therapist is with the woman and says, how often do you have sex? And she goes constantly. It's at least once a week. And I thought, oh. bingo, there's desire. Yes. First of all, I have seen that scene. Second of all, I see that scene every single day in my office because that's, true that's too. what happens. One of the things that I'll ask a couple in a first session is how often do you have sex? And for whichever partner is the higher desire partner, they will always say that it's less often than whatever the lower desire partner. All right. So wait, wait, you, you said something about um, how you can broach the topic of having sex without it being you know, a a terrible thing when someone says no. So how do you tell Mm -hmm. people to ask to have sex or to approach someone that it's not going to be that kind of an experience? Oh, it's so complicated because it depends on the couple. Um, But a big way that we can do this is that when you're saying that differentiate between I'm saying no to doing this activity right now, but I'm not saying no to you. And I'm not saying no to that reach for intimacy. So you want to be able to, and whenever we reach toward our partner, whether it's a sexual thing or whether it's a, Hey, do you want to go on a walk with me thing? Or, a, you know, I want to snuggle on the couch with you thing. Even if it's a, Hey, I'd like you to, you know, look at this meme that I found on Instagram. Do you think it's funny, right? This is a reach toward our partner. And we're, we always benefit when we can acknowledge and accept the reach, even if we're not in a place where we can do the thing. Right. So we want to be able to say, thank you so much for asking. I would love to have sex with you. This is just really not a good time with me. 
for me? Or can we do something else, right? I would love to snuggle with you on the couch. I would love to make out for a little bit. I would love to go for a walk, right? What are the other things you can do to acknowledge that there's vulnerability in that reach um, that aren't just no, or how could you possibly ask? Um, so it's really, really acknowledging both sides and also working together to understand the difference between I'm saying no to sex and I'm saying no to you. To you, right. I can often feel that way. Talk about fantasy for a minute, you know, because mm-hmm. a lot of people, they're reluctant to even admit that they fantasize. And, you know, it's this idea that fantasizing about having sex is maybe a big red flag that the relationship is in trouble. Mm-hmm. Or is fantasy a normal and healthy thing for regular old people to do all the time? Well, you know the answer to this, and that is that fantasy is, of course, a really, really normal and healthy thing to do. Um, and regardless of what we're fantasizing about, right, fantasy is just that. It's fantasy. It's make-believe. So we get to fantasize about whatever we want, even if it's something taboo. Often the things that we fantasize about are things that we would never in a million years do in our real lives, but that's what makes it fantasy. That's what makes it fun. And as long as you're capable of differentiating between fantasy and reality, as long as you understand, right, all, all of the things that make sex with another partner healthy, right, especially around consent, around, around getting permission for anything that you're doing, fantasize about whatever you want. That's great. I also want to acknowledge that it's perfectly normal not to fantasize, right? A lot of folks, especially folks who are on the asexuality spectrum, aren't fantasizing at all, and that's perfectly fine, right? I don't want you to force yourself to fantasize if it doesn't come naturally to you. But if you're someone that has really rich, colorful sexual fantasies, embrace it. It's so much fun, right? Lean into the depths of your imagination. If you're someone who has very vanilla sexual fantasies, right? Wait, 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 stop right there. Stop right there, because a lot of people don't know what vanilla means, and mm-hmm. and while we're like on this topic of um, fantasy and vanilla, um, we're going we're to talk a little bit about kink uh, because I just have to say as a mom, I was so proud when you told me that you were a kink affirmative clinician and I didn't even know what that meant. Awesome. <laughs> so I just give myself some credit here. I mean, how many moms are proud when they hear their daughter is an expert in kink? So talk a little bit about kink and what being kink affirmative means and what that can mean either in fantasy or in real life actual sex. It's, well, I think, first of all, the idea of being a kink affirming clinician, um, which is something that I'm also proud to be because I think it's really, really important uh, for sex therapists, especially, but I would encourage folks even who aren't um, in the sexuality field to explore what it means to be kink affirming, because what it really is, is it's about being sex positive, which is a term that I've mentioned before. And what that means is that we acknowledge that there is a wide range of ways that folks can show up sexually of ways that can be authentic to themselves sexually, including kink. And when we think of kink, there are a lot of things that are under the kink umbrella, right? It's mostly just a big term for folks who like to practice sexual acts that are outside of the sexual majority. Um, but the thing that you hear most commonly around kink are folks who are really into BDSM, right? You see that again. So what, wait, 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 stop right there. What does BDSM even stand for? What does it mean? People use that question, right? People use it a lot. It's also something that I could go off on a whole tangent about how it's misrepresented um, in the media as well. But it stands for a bunch of things. The main ones being bondage and discipline. Then that D is used twice, dominance and submission. 
and that S is used twice, sadism and masochism. Bondage, discipline, dominance, submission, sadism, masochism. Um, the big thing that you're going to get when you think about BDSM, when you think about a lot of kink, is power play. So playing with like who's in charge, who's submitting, who's dominant, who's submitting. Um, it's something that can be really fun. It's something that's perfectly healthy, um, especially when it's done in a way that's full of consent and communication. I mean, really a lot of the clients I work with who identify as kinky are just practicing so many um, safe and healthy sexual tools that quite frankly, I wish some of my more vanilla clients, vanilla being anyone who's not kinky, um, more of my vanilla clients, it's a lot of the tools that I'm teaching them too, right? It's all about communication. It's all about consent. And a lot of what a kink affirmative clinician may be helping someone who's kinky, who practices BDSM with, is fighting some of that sexual shame and the stigma that comes from feeling really authentic and full from some of these sexual practices. So switching gears a little bit, you know, this might be the the first podcast that you and I have done together, but we actually do a lot of stuff together. And one of the fun things that we do is, is we do these live Q and A's with, with groups of people, um, which is, you know, basically a conversation, not just with a mother and daughter, but a gynecologist and a sex therapist who happen to be mother and daughter. And I've kind of always thought it's like having a bunch of strangers at our dinner table because this is the kind of discussion we have like at Thanksgiving, but, um, and when we and every time we do one of these events and afterwards when we're always chatting about how it went, we always say the same thing. It's like everyone always asks the same questions. We get the same stuff again and again and again. Yeah. And it you know it depends a little bit on on the age group of the people and but generally it's all the same stuff. And I think probably the most common question that we get when we have a group of women in the room because sometimes it's men, sometimes it's women, sometimes it's mixed. Um, but when we when we are talking to women, the most common thing we get is they want to know why they're not having an orgasm and what they mm. can do so that they will have an orgasm. And it's mm. actually kind of an interesting question for us to handle together because I talk about mm. the medical aspects of this and why someone might be having a difficult time orgasming because of, you know, medication that they're mm. on or, or some medical condition. Mm. But then you talk about, okay, but if there's no physical or medical issues, why they may mm. not be having an orgasm. So just, you know, I, I know you could talk about this for hours, but real briefly talk about how sex therapists approach a situation where I send someone to you who's perfectly fine medically. They've got nothing wrong. Neurologically, everything is intact. Everything is great. They just can't have an orgasm. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a good question. It is such a common reason that people come to see both of us. Um, the first thing that I always do before we do any deep therapy work is I make sure that they have a good basic understanding of their anatomy um, and how folks with female bodies tend to get to the point of orgasm. Because what we know is that in most sexual education programs, they're not even saying the word pleasure, right? They're definitely not showing women where their clitoris is, how to actually have a pleasurable experience. And what we know that especially for most male-female couples, they're having sex in a way that isn't actually conducive to the female orgasm, right? Well, well we know I mean, you know, because most women don't orgasm during regular old intercourse, penile vaginal penetration, and they don't they don't know that. And like you said, you know, it's about an education. Cause I think mm-hmm. 
people don't also appreciate the fact that a sex therapist isn't just doing therapy, but you're also an educator. Right. I'm also an educator. I'm also a coach, right? I am, again, I'm never having anyone touch themselves or doing anything like that in my office, but I may, if it matches their comfort level, send them home with some exercises to try on their own that are really geared towards getting to know their body, really understanding their body, because only then can we begin to talk about, right? Is there anything else, right? Anything on a deeper level that's preventing them from being able to let go? Is there shame that's, that's coming up? Are there partner issues that are coming up in terms of having an orgasm with their partner? Um, but a lot of it's about just getting them to a place where they can be comfortable and from a place of real knowledge and self-understanding, be able to have a sexual relationship with themselves if they're comfortable with it. Um, cause a lot of, a lot of women actually don't have a really great sexual relationship. No. And I had a conversation with uh, Dr. Lori Mintz, who I know, you know, as well, who wrote mm-hmm. Becoming Cliterate. And, and I'm going to put that episode in the program notes because Dr. Mintz does not do sex therapy, but she writes extensively about Mm -hmm. female sexual function and talks about this discrepancy between um, what men know about sexuality and women and expectations Mm -hmm. and even something as simple as knowing where your clitoris is and that it's going to need to be simulated in order to have an orgasm. And, And so much of the work that you do is really based on the kinds of stuff that that she's talking about all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Her book, Becoming Clitoris is one of Becoming Clitorate is one of the main books that I'll refer clients to because she really does a brilliant job of explaining the orgasm gap, right? Mm -hmm. Why why are, especially in male-female sexual pairings, why are women having less orgasms than their male partners, because that's not true when women are having sex with other women. It's true. It's really a problem with male, female sex. It's not a problem with women. Well, as, as we are often saying, you know, some women just need a map to their clitoris and to be shown where it is because no one, you know, no one had brought that up when they were a kid. So how has, you know, um, I mean, things have really changed in the last few years, of course, with COVID. And most of the therapy you do now is virtual as opposed to being in the room. How has that changed therapy? And do you think that's going to continue? I hope it will continue. I mean, I think there are a lot of really, really wonderful things that being able to do telehealth therapy has allowed us. The main thing being accessibility. Right. There are so many, especially when we think about sex therapy, that we really see a lot of sex therapists, myself included, who are congregated around major cities. And I'm able to see people now who are three or four hours outside of Chicago um, because they're able to access me virtually. Right. I can see under my license, I can see anyone in the state of Illinois. And it's really, really opened up accessibility to a lot of folks who wouldn't otherwise have the access to a sex therapist or someone who really specializes in this stuff. Um, it's also allowed people to be able to fit therapy into a workday, right? It used to be that if someone wanted to see me, they'd have to take an hour to drive downtown, find parking, to take the train, right? And then an hour to see me and then an hour to get back to the office. And most people aren't in a position where they can take three hours out of a workday. But no. to be able to take an hour, right? If you, Especially if you're working from home or you could slip into a private room, um, 
going to say that's got to be a little, it can be real interesting at work if you're yeah, doing it depends. therapy sessions on your on lunch hour. Jobs, and it does take some extra work on my part to make sure that, you know, where they are is confidential and that nobody's listening in. Um, but accessibility wise, it's been really, really amazing. And I hope it's something that sticks around for a long time. And it's How many people do um, sex therapy from their car? Like they just <laughs> leave the office and go out. I see out. a lot of people who will sneak into their car. It's the perfect way um, to have a private space. Um, and I'll see, and I'll see couples where one's at home and one's in their car or one's in a little conference room in their office and the, right. It's just, you know, I try to say no therapy while you're driving, right? That's dangerous, but certainly the sit in your car, um, it's been great accessibility wise. I think there are things that we lose when we do virtual therapy, um, especially with couples therapy. There's something that's really wonderful about being able to be in the room with your partner. Um, it's much easier to have couples have a conversation between themselves as opposed to looking at me. Um, I know a lot of people have Zoom fatigue do not want one more Zoom call in their day. Um, but there is some stuff that's missed. There's a level of intimacy that we don't really get. Um, but the other side of that coin is a lot of people feel more comfortable in their own homes, right? Yeah. That they're in their safe place, that they're cuddled up with their dog or their cat. I mean, I've met so many pets through doing this and that it's really their safe space and they actually open up more doing it virtually. So it really depends. And I'm yeah. playing around now with more of a hybrid model trying to see well, yes i would think that would be interesting especially with couples work mm-hmm. to meet someone in person at least once and, and see what they look you know how they respond to each other too you know they really like yes. each other. it is really helpful um, to be able to meet people in person when possible yeah. and you know of course always changing in terms of what's safe and what feels accessible so right. One of the things that also is, is is worth mentioning when we talk about accessibility is a lot of people um they're they're surprised to learn that that sex therapy is is covered by their insurance because they somehow think that the, this is you know like something extra like you know plastic surgery or something and and a, a coach isn't necessarily going to be um going to be covered by insurance but because you are a therapist any insurance that covers therapy is going to generally cover sex therapy as well correct that is correct and i'm billing insurance as psychotherapy as talk therapy because that's what it is um it does not say sex therapy on your insurance bill no it does not <laughs> it's really important that's really important and the other thing also i think one of the differences is that in general um you know, when you think in terms of going for therapy for anxiety or depression, it's really a very long-term thing. With sex therapy, is that the case? Um, You know, it really, really depends. I mean, I certainly, especially because a lot of the therapy I do is sex inclusive and I'm following people through different life stages. I certainly have a lot of clients at this point that I've been seeing for years, right? Sometimes that's continuously. Sometimes it's because people come in and out as their life change, as they have different stressors, as their bodies change, as they have old patterns that pop back up, right? We're all human. Old stuff is always going to rear its head. Um, But if I have someone who comes in, especially if all they're needing to use an early example is some sex education, um, some understanding of their body, and they, especially if they have another therapist that they've been working with for a long time that they feel good about, sometimes it can be fairly short-term work. So it really, really depends. Well, that's the other thing too, is a lot of the people who see you have a therapist. And I always tell patients, Mm -hmm. this isn't instead of your therapist, this Mm -hmm. is along with your therapist because it is a different can be. I mean, it doesn't have to be, but it, but it can be. It can. Yes. Be. Yes. 
I will, we could we could go on for hours because we normally do. You know? <laughs> Although usually I won't say this. Usually we are in the same room and mm-hmm. we are not in the same room right now. And it is much more fun being with you in the same room. So um, let's have dinner tonight. OK. And, <laughs> OK. And this has been a work. We have to do this again. And I think next time what I want to do is um, take actual questions. So we're going to put it out there on social mm-hmm. media and people can ask questions to the, the mother daughter gynecologist sex therapist team because mm-hmm. um that's what we really have fun doing that's that that's so kind of our thing but i mm. thought well this is a good place to start so mm. thanks honey for being a guest on my podcast thanks for having me this was so much fun it's always fun to collaborate with you and i will just take a moment to say that i'm so proud of you and everything that you've mm-hmm. done with this podcast and with everything else and it's really been cool to watch you take on this new platform and now to be a part of it so well, I'm going to say something I've never said at the end of a podcast before. I love you. <laughs> I love you too. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Thank you.